Hello everyone and welcome to the next edition of the VTX podcast. Here at the Veterinary Thought Exchange we like to start by asking what are you thinking? And this week we have the great pleasure of chatting to Ashley, otherwise known as the Derm Vet. We're not chatting all things dermatology, we also chat about her perspectives of the veterinary industry and actually some really interesting insights into that elusive work-life balance. We're also chatting to the wonderful Kat Evans in our clinical segment um, and this week we're talking all things radiography. We'd like to say a massive thank you to IMV Imaging for their support of our clinical segment this week. Just to introduce myself, my name is Scott, I'm one of the founders of ETX and I'm a specialist in small animal internal medicine. Hi Ashley, thank you so much for um, joining us on the podcast, it's really such an honour to have you on. Um, I I suppose we'll start by kind of you talking a little bit about yourself, but I, you know, as a summary, and you can tell me if I'm misrepresenting you or not, but as a summary, I feel that what comes across is that you are lots of things. (laughs) So you're a a mother first and foremost, obviously, right? I had to say that one first. So you're a mother, you are obviously a vet, but you're a veterinary dermatologist and clearly very passionate about that, which is great. Um, and then there was something else that kind of came through when I was looking at your website and different things is also this idea, this idea, I say, of work-life balance. But we'll come back to that because does that really exist? Maybe you can tell me if it does or not. So let's start with being, let's start with VET. So let's start with um, taking us back to your ambitions to be a vet was that always a thing and and kind of that initial journey through vet school potentially sure um so I what's interesting I think to some people is I actually didn't have a lot of pets growing up I um what I my dad's an air force pilot or now retired air force pilot so we moved around quite a bit um so you know based on just moving around a lot we never we didn't have a lot of pets I had a cat when I was super young that I hardly remember Um, and then I had, we did have a golden retriever for a couple of years, but then based on a move when we were relocating, we had to rehome him. So we actually didn't have a lot of pets, but I absolutely just always gravitated towards animals. Like it was, you know, it was clear when I would see people with, especially dogs, like I just always gravitated towards them. And so it was, um, my, when I was in fifth grade, so I was still pretty young, but that's when I realized that we had a, like a career day in elementary school. And that's when I realized that a veterinarian came in and it just had never hit me before. Cause we didn't have a lot of pets. Like, Oh, I adore animals. I never thought about having that be what I do. And then I really never looked back to be honest. Um, I liked kids. Um, Hence the reason I have two, I suppose, but I kind of thought being a pediatrician could be really interesting, but it was just always, it was always vet from there on out. So, um, dermatology didn't hit me until I was in vet school, but it was veterinarian pretty much from fifth grade on, even though we didn't have a lot of our own pets. So hold on. So fifth, you just need to help us a wee bit. So fifth grade, how old are you in fifth grade? What's that? Oh yes. So I'm <laughs> probably like around 10 ish. Okay, okay. I forgot that I'm the yeah, first sorry. American on. Um, yeah. So no, it's okay. Yeah. We're the ones that do everything like totally different than everybody. Um, so yeah. So about 10, so pretty young. And do you think that, so, so obviously, cause I've been into my own kid's school um, to do like a, you know, 
to t- talk to them about what I do, like with young kids, you know, six and seven, maybe. Um, do, was, was, I mean, are you kind of like, are you are, are you encouraged to think about careers at that kind of early stage? Do you think or do, is that something that people encourage? Are you are you are you thinking about being lawyers and doctors at, at that kind of stage, or is that just kind of your was kind of a dream at that point? Yeah, I think. Um, I don't know that it's healthy to push people into deciding that young, because let's be honest even in college, like you, you can change your aspirations while you're working in a certain career to want to do something else. But I think just introducing possibilities is always a good thing. Like my daughter is four and she'll say like, I want to be a veterinarian. She calls it a veterinarian. So she goes, I want to be a veterinarian. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. Like we all want to be better. Veterinarians. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. I love that. I think just like, you know, it's all, I think it's healthy to always expose, you know, kids to possibilities, but I don't think I personally, like I'm not an expert in children, child psychology, but I don't, you know, you certainly don't want to like have people decide what they want to do. I I think even in our field, you can choose what you want to do or what your aspirations are. Like when I went into vet school, if you told me I was going to end up being a veterinary dermatologist who also tried to teach through social media and a podcast, I would have never thought that was the route I was taking. So yeah, it's just, it's always nice to be able to kind of change direction. So, you know, I think just letting kids know it's possible is really great, but I'm not necessarily pressuring them to decide. And actually, I think that's really interesting because I, there was an amazing sort of uh, quote, I suppose, from someone that I was listening to. It was actually, so our um, governing body in the UK is the Royal College of Veterinary Surgeons. So that's our kind of, yeah, our governing body. And and our, our current president is the first black female uh, president of the Royal College of Veterinary Surgeons. And she said recently in a, in a, a, a thing that she was doing, she, she said, if you can't see it, you can't be it. And I think that's so true. If you if you're not exposed to seeing people doing or being things, then how are you ever going to aspire to that? Do you know what I mean? So that kind of idea that we sh- it's great to just see people being successful, loving what they're doing and and I suppose aspiring to be x y and z is never a bad thing absolutely yeah i mean same with my story right like we didn't have a lot of pets i never really thought about it until i saw it um and so absolutely i think like exposure and um you know getting the word out there is is so important especially when you know there is some unfortunately negativity about our field just with some of the stress and some of the you know, difficult things that come with our field. I I'm in love with our field and I truly do, you know, no, it doesn't mean there's not hard days or doesn't mean there's not times that are difficult, but I really do think it's an amazing community. So I think the more we can expose, you know, people to that, the more we're going to continue to grow that amazing community and continue to be really positive about it. I, I, well, I love that. And I think you're absolutely right. I think the community across the whole veterinary sector whether that be on social media but just generally across the the the, you know within the UK or beyond you know we feel that on so many levels actually I think it's interesting though you you talk about the difficult times and I think they're obviously we and we've talked on this podcast Karen will vouch for that on so many occasions about the challenges and that comes up all the time do you think that going into vet school do you feel that your idea of being a vet is what being a vet is actually like? Oh, I think there's only so much you can know until you're thrown into the industry. Um, you know, I think there's aspects of it that I 
do feel like are pretty similar, but there's definitely things, you know, you don't understand, um, you know, the business side of it, managing, uh, different personalities, um, you know, frustrated clients, like you can hear about that, but until you really get experience and you're within that field. And I think that's true for most fields, you know, my husband's an engineer. I think there's lots of things about his field that are different than what he imagined. Like he does a lot more kind of managing projects than like truly some of the engineering skills he learned. So I think that's true with most fields. Like once you get into it, there's always little, you know, aspects that maybe weren't as romantic as the dream that you had. Um, but I feel like that's probably true in general. So even as a dermatologist, you know, we deal with, um, people who have financial constraints, people that, um, owners that are frustrated because their pets dealing with a chronic disease owners that don't necessarily want to use certain therapies, even though we think it's really important. So every specialty, every form of medicine, even if you're not in clinical practice, always has some, you know, shade of difficulty that can come with it. No, definitely. Just jumping back to your vet school uh, days. So just right just where you went to vet school. Yeah. So I went to vet school at the University of Missouri. So it's pretty much smack dab in the middle of the United States. Um, A bit of my heart, and this is really true, is is in Oregon. And and I, um, because I know that's where you are now, right? Portland, Oregon. So I spent... um, Back in 2003, when I was in vet school, um, I spent a whole summer in Coos Bay in Oregon doing an externship uh, as a vet student. And it and Karen will vouch for this. It was absolutely, if I could pick one summer of my life that I could relive tomorrow, it would be that summer. I had the best time in Oregon. It is the most beautiful place. I have some of the best friends there. And actually, my husband and I went back uh, in 2003 seven and sort of we did the full from Seattle to San Diego drive and went back to Oregon and, and even I've I've said like well anyway I love it so I've got I've got a real love for Oregon generally so I do know where ge- geographically that is <laughs> so, but I have no <laughs> idea where Missouri is <laughs> so. that's okay that would not be abnormal <laughs> Um, yeah, I, I love Oregon too. It's a pretty amazing place. Um, it's just like a really fun area that's very outdoorsy and, and has a lot of wineries and breweries and restaurants and, um, really fun laid by people. So we've really loved it, but yeah, Missouri is basically like, if, if you dropped a pin in the middle of the state, I went to undergrad in Iowa. I went to vet school at Missouri. Uh, I like to say like I toured the Midwest. Um, my family was originally from Minnesota. And then I did my internship in Purdue, which is Indiana. None of which I would expect you to know, except for that they're in the middle. We know Iowa because it's important when it comes to the election. Yes. Not like the- <laughs> there you go. Yes. Okay. Um, and then I went to, I did my residency at a private practice in Southern California. So Orange County, which is just like an hour South of Los Angeles. Um, and then I've been here. So, um, kind of moved around a lot, but we definitely love being in Oregon right now. So tell me the moment that you thought itchy skin, that's what I'm going to (laughs) do. I know it's more than that. (laughs) I don't know. That's exactly how it went. Um, (laughs) But I always, I always joke that my first exposure to being a dermatologist was actually in my first year of vet school from an anesthesiologist who was our associate dean at Missouri. Um, and he made the joke when I was like middle of my first year that if he could go back and do it all over again, he would be a dermatologist because there's 
really not many emergencies. You can have pretty, you know, pretty cushy hours if you wanted to, and really nothing dies. And that's not why I did it, but it was definitely like my first exposure to, oh, that might be a specialty. Like if I wanted to specialize, that would have, you know, good quality of life. Um, but it kind of planted a seed, but then it was really kind of going through like pathology, um, you know, learning about infections and managing allergies. And that made me fall in love with it. It was the science behind dermatology. And I think a big part of it for me is I, I love the visualization. So to have my organ be the external organ that I can touch, that I can feel that I can really evaluate, um, you know, seeing lectures where there was amazing before and after photos of successfully managing dermatology disease, like that all kind of fueled it. And I think pretty much by like my second or third year, I was, I was pretty sure that I was going to try to specialize in dermatology just for all those reasons. And so did you, so you, you, did you go kind of internship residency? Was there, was it, was it pretty much quite a quick succession through the, 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 the specialty training. Yeah, I was definitely, which if people know me, this is not a surprise. Um, I was definitely like a put my head down and go straight through type person. So once I knew that's what I wanted to do, um, I, you know, graduated from vet school, did my internship, um, was fortunate enough to get a residency afterwards. And then, um, that was basically it. So I didn't, there's pros and cons to that. The dermatologist I currently work with, she spent some time in general practice. And I, I honestly think there's a lot to be said for that. There's, I am very limited, you know, like I know the basic stuff from like my internship, like I can talk some medicine and some surgery, but when it comes to like, you know, anything GP related, I am very limited and we rely a lot on the other dermatologists for some of that knowledge. So I think there's so many different ways you can successfully do it. And I know a lot of wonderful dermatologists who went to general practice first, because you do see so much dermatology in general practice. Yeah, it's. I think it's really interesting because I did my, um, so I was in general practice for five years before I did um, my residency. And I think... Um, I think there was, there was, I do, obviously with internal medicine, there probably are pros to that, you know, just having this kind of, you know, general kind of idea of how things go all, you know, across the board. But I, I don't know, there's, there's some pros, I think, to doing it the other way. You know, I think it, it there's pros and cons to both, I think is the, is, is what I say. And actually, yep. um, if you know what you're going to do, um, then why not just crack on and do it? <laughs> so, um, so as far as your, um, your, sort of uh your your situation now so you moved to Oregon for a particular job or a, uh, some outdoorsy stuff or f what was the reason for kind of going there yeah so I'm still with the same company so I'm with the same company we have several dermatology clinics throughout the country and actually um one in oh, okay. Australia, one in New Zealand. So we I was oh wow yeah so it's it's pretty that's cool it's pretty cool. I think so. I've gotten to go to the, yeah, the in Perth. Cool. Yeah. So I've gotten to go to the Perth office twice to like help cover some, um, time there a while ago. <laughs> and it was pretty amazing to be like, you want to go to Australia for a few weeks to see cases? Like, well, yeah, of course I do. <laughs> like, I love that. I, I, I just, I just, um, I just went to the Perth office for a couple of weeks and I just, you know, yeah. and I, I mean, what? it was a long time ago. It was a <laughs> That's long time cool. ago. Yeah, I think it was because I was a resident, so I was probably like the cheapest 
um, that they could just like <laughs> knock me over there. We'll send the resident, yeah. <laughs> yeah, go send the resident. You know, she she can she doesn't have a life. She can give up like two to four weeks of being there. Um, but yeah, it's um, so it's the same company. So essentially, we're very we have a lot of clinics in Southern California. I did my residency in Orange County. I stayed on after I passed boards. Um, and cause I love the clinic. I love the company I'm with. Um, but they, you know, they always knew that I didn't necessarily want to be in Southern California forever. So then an opportunity came up for the company to expand in Portland. Um, and I hadn't been to Portland. So I actually came up a few times, spent some time here, loved it and just saw it as a really good, um, ability for me to be on the West coast, which we really, my husband and I really enjoy, but also, um, you know, be somewhere different. So we're both from the Midwest um, and being here is kind of a nice marriage between the West Coast and Midwest because you're still West Coast, but it's, it's you know, more relaxed and um, we are very outdoorsy. So that definitely influenced our decision to come here, just the hiking and all of that. You do kind of speak a bit on obviously being a very passionate dermatologist and that really comes through actually in, in everything you do. But you have touched on this work-life balance. So uh, you're passionate about that too, correct me if I'm wrong. So tell me about why you're passionate about kind of getting that message out there. And actually my question is, does that, is that, does that really exist? Is that a thing? Or are we just, do we just say it, but it doesn't really exist and we're just kind of pretending? Yeah, I think there's so much discussion on this topic as far as, you know, there's people who don't like the term work-life balance. They like work-life integration. They don't like either. I'm a believer that it really looks different for everybody. So when I say like, I don't mind the term work-life balance because I think there's always some form of balance, but I do think that balance looks completely different for everybody. So like, I, th I think it's unrealistic to say, well, I'm going to perfectly balance every day, or I'm going to perfectly balance every week because in general, like, you know, a lot of the stuff I do, whether it's the clinic cases or speaking or you know, now doing all this other stuff that's come with the derm vet is things really come in waves. Like, you know, you'll have a few big conferences that are all happen to be like within a month or two, and then maybe you don't have as much for a few months. So for me, the way that I have to look at it is, you know, I don't mind. I love work. Like that's just ingrained in me. That's just who I am. But I love that. Like, I don't like when people compare and say, well, you can do all this stuff. I'm like, yes, but I choose to like, I like doing that stuff. Like I, I am personally not meant to be a person that stays at home all day with my kids. Like I am not, that does not make me happy. What makes me really happy is fulfilling myself with my career. And then I am so happy when I'm with my children and I've, you know, been able to do those other things. And then if we go on vacation, it's like, I can focus on them. I can focus on them on the weekends. Um, but that's what works for me. Like that's totally different for everybody. So I think when we get into the comparison of like, what does work-life balance mean? That's really dangerous mm. because I think it's completely different for every single person. So for me, like I might, my work-life balance might include a lot more work than say another mom who really where they are happy mm -hmm. is being a stay-at-home mom, which, you know, is not how I am wired. It becomes very clear when I have to have like my kids for a week off because daycare is closed that like, that is not where my husband and I thrive, but we thrive, <laughs> you know, both having our careers and then spending our time with our, our children separate from that. So I guess that's like my biggest advice is you really have to 
not try to balance a 50 50. Like you have to balance whatever makes you happy. And I think the other thing that can change is you're allowed to change your priorities. So like you might say, you know, I can just speak from this as a mom perspective because I have two, a two and a four-year-old. Um, you know, I've had friends that they needed to pull back on work. They wanted to be at home more when their kids were younger, but that doesn't mean that after a few years of all of a sudden, that's not what's fulfilling them, that it's wrong for them to change and decide now I actually want to work more. So I think that your seasons of life can definitely change. And we don't have to make a claim that I am a, I'm a full-time clinical veterinarian, or I'm a part-time clinical veterinarian, or I'm a stay-at-home mom. Like those all might change just depending on where you're at with your life and what situations change. So I don't, I don't oppose like the term balance, but I just think it looks really different for everybody. And what I think is unattainable is this perception that everyone's going to be 50, 50 all the time. Like, I think it just has different shades for different people. Honestly, I, I have never heard, I, I honestly think that that is brilliant. What you've just said, (laughs) I've never heard someone quite put it like that. And I think you've really hit the nail on the head with that. First of all, no one is happy when daycare is closed. That is a terrible time for everyone. <laughs> second of all, right? <laughs> second of all, yes, that is not good. That is not good for anyone's anything. My all unhappy. We are all. I am unhappy when that happens. Um. Second of all, I think that is so empowering to hear someone speak like that about work-life balance. Let's use that term, because I think you're absolutely right. Because actually it's again about kind of shedding the guilt about feeling a certain way about certain things. Because actually, like you say, if you enjoy your job, then you should be able to dedicate time to that job as well as enjoying your children and dedicating time to them. And and we shouldn't be made or shamed into the proportion of time or whatever that we dedicate to X, Y, and Z. That's an individual thing. And I think that's really, really powerful because I think a lot of the kind of speaking or, or a kind of narrative about work-life balance is that people are peddling a certain thing. So if it's not like this, then it's not really work-life balance. But actually flip that on its head, like you've just said, but it's it's work-life balance in the way that you want to do work-life balance. And I think that's perfect. I really, really love that. <laughs> you should write that down. Yay! Well, can I give an <laughs> Can I give an example to kind of illustrate a point on Please. that? Because again, I do think it's different for everybody. Mm. So I think a lot of times we push it to think um, everyone's not doing enough of the life part. Like, right. Like that's kind of when it comes up is like, you're, you know, people are working too much and I, there's totally a truth to that. Like I, I can be guilty of that. I can work too much. You know, I feel like I'm providing for my family. I'm doing what I love. The good thing is I have a spouse that, you know, sometimes can say, Hey, like if, maybe you need to take a day off, you know, cause for me, like, unless I have a, a reason I can get caught up in the work thing. So I'm not saying there's not a place where people really do have to be reminded, Hey, take a break for yourself. That's absolutely true. But an example I have of just saying we're all different. Um, so I had to make the decision, um, about like seven months ago, I was working four days a week in the clinic. Um, you know, it was really busy. I was trying to do as much as I could on my one day off as far as the Durham vet stuff but things started piling up more. It's what I love to do. Additionally, besides being clinical is I love to lecture. I love to do the podcast. I learn a lot myself and I just enjoy doing that. So, you know, I had to make the decision with my husband because we were running into the problem of me not having 
a happy balance for me. Like I was trying to do too much on the weekends and I wasn't enjoying my family. So I made the decision to work a little bit longer days, but only work three days a week in the clinic. Um, the other two days a week, I'm strictly doing all this stuff. Um, but I, we had a case where we were really backed up with our video otoscopy procedures. And so I had a Friday where I was like, well, I could come in on my day off and, and do that. I have a lecture I'm giving that afternoon anyway, virtually. So I'll just go do that in the morning. I can go home. I live pretty close to my clinic. Um, and the other doctor can watch the recovery and no problem. And so I put up a post about that and someone um, wrote to me and they're like, I would never go into my day off. Those are too precious, da, da, da. And that's fine. I was like, but I chose to do that. Like, you no, know, my work didn't force me to, it wasn't like, you know, they were putting pressure on me. I was like, yeah, I could go in for a few hours, do something I love to do like a videotoscopy and, and do the other stuff that afternoon. So again, it's that judgment either way, unless it's really an unhealthy balance, that's different. Like, yes, you know, we don't want anyone to be like a workaholic, but everyone's priorities can be very different. And I, that was like the one time I've gone in on my day off in years just to do a procedure. So it's not like I'm trying to pack them all in on my day off. So that's why I am just a really big proponent to say it's different for everybody. Like it's okay. If someone decides they want to work a little bit extra certain times, if it's healthy for them. I think honestly, I think, and it, that speaks to me so much as well. Cause I, I mean, I've struggled with this over the years in so many ways, but I've actually experienced a little bit in my, in my own workplace where we, we have certain members of staff who potentially are very strict on the work life division. And actually I've, I've actually almost not, I hate to say shamed, but I've had moments where I've, I've been made to feel a bit silly for phoning on a day that I'm not working or, you know, I don't know. And, and, and I, I wonder whether actually you've just helped me massively to be like, no, that's okay. Like if I've chosen to, <laughs> no, I'm, I'm being really serious. Like if I've chosen to call in or email on that day blah 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 then actually it, as long as it's a, in a a way that works okay for me and it's not destroying my life then actually you know potentially we're not to be feeling so bad about that so i really i i really really honestly love that and i think you've you've um you've communicated that in a very eloquent way eloquent way so thank you for that that's that's helped me so oh, awesome. we we just mentioned this a little before we we started recording today but you've obviously then branched into I think you know being a, a a specialist definitely does bring other opportunities particularly with lecturing so I think that definitely does come into the into the stuff that we do but you've made this decision what what doesn't come with the territory as 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 planned is is you know social media platform and uh podcasts like these those are not pre prerequisite things you know you can You've chosen to do those things. Um, you're really, uh, how lucky were you to get the Dermvet as your thing? Because that's like, <laughs> that's mine. No one else gets that. I am the Dermvet. How good's that? <laughs> Second of all, actually, and, and we share a little bit of a, so I got Scott the Vet. When I was 17, um, Scott the Vet was not taken by anyone else. So I've got Scott the Vet. And, no, and there, are, there are other Scott the Vets, but they don't have just Scott the Vet. So that's also... <laughs> Not that that's seen me very far in my life, but anyway. Um, so you got the Derm Vet, but then you've also... So I think my questions are, why why do that? So what's why put yourself in that kind of sphere? It's a really lovely sphere. Instagram's a great, great place and, we, and we're, uh, you know, but why 
put yourself in that in that arena? Yeah. So I'll start out by saying, um, uh, if anyone follows anything I do or listens to the podcast or knows me, I, um, when it's the derm vet, it's more just like the derm vet, not the derm Oh, sorry. Vet. Right. No, okay. no, no. I'm just, I'm just joking. But like some people be like, oh, you're the derm vet. And I'm like, no. The it's, only one. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's like, clearly if you watch anything I do, I welcome other people coming on and discussion and collaboration. Um, I needed something that made it clear what I was, you know, if you're in kind of that world, you need something, people give you like two seconds, like based on what your name is or what your feed is. So it's just like clearly the derm vet, like I'm a derm vet. Um, but you know, my whole purpose of the platform is to make everyone a better derm vet. And that doesn't mean specialists, but dermatologists don't need to learn from me. Like I always say like, I am not the smartest dermatologist out there. You know, there's people that do amazing research. I think I'm very good clinically and I think I'm very passionate. Um, but the whole kind of premise of it was I was starting to lecture and I really enjoyed it because when I became a dermatologist, I wanted to help more pets, more pets that were itchy, more pets that had autoimmune diseases, more pets that were painful from their ear disease. Well, I can only see, you know, so many pets, um, myself, and there's only so many dermatologists. I think there's like 300 of us that are boarded. So there's a lot of places where either referral is, you know, right now we're all really booked out, um, or they might not have dermatologists near them. So knowing derm was very common. It, I really wanted to teach general practitioners how to practice better dermatology, the whole, so I started lecturing a lot and I really enjoyed it. The breakout into social media, a lot of that was becoming a mom, to be honest. So I love traveling. Yeah, I love traveling. I love speaking. Um, but again, I, that is what I love to do. I know that wasn't for everybody and not everybody can make that a part of what they do as their job. Um, and so I was starting to think like, you know, now that I have two kids, I was actually on maternity leave with my son. And again, I love work. So there was parts of it that I was really missing. And I was starting to, you know, get emails about maybe doing lectures in the future. Cause these things get planned out like months ahead of time. So I started realizing I always wanted to help the veterinary field. And I was doing some stuff, you know, about like how, like working out and nutrition. And so it became clear, like, oh, I could actually help other veterinarians practice better dermatology just by tidbits, just like small things. Like not everyone could always, you know, fly out to Las Vegas to go to Western and see us lecture. And there's lots of great lectures. Like sometimes the same hour, like the three lectures you want to see, and you can only go to one of them. So it's like, well, I could, you know, actually teach how to do a cytology. I could teach, you know, how to recognize pemphigus uh, foliaceus in a, a kitty claw fold because it's visual. Like that's the one really benefit dermatology has is it's very visual. So it really serves itself well to something that's visual like social media. So I kind of started toying with that and I just really enjoyed it because I felt like I was helping the veterinary field. The podcast kind of came down, came on a little bit later, same mentality. It's like talking to other people who are busy, you know, whether they were parents or not parents, they, we all have things going on in our lives. And so a lot of people would say, you know, they would listen to certain podcasts to learn like on their commute, like they truly wanted to learn. It maybe wasn't always going to be an official like CE hour at a conference. Like they just truly wanted to learn. 
So the podcast came along because I clearly don't have an issue talking. It's pretty easy for me. <laughs> so talking is pretty natural for me. Um, and I just wanted to be able to provide that. So I was like, well, I'll try it. I'll just, you know, I didn't know what I was doing. I still don't think I know what I'm doing that well on the podcast, but I'm willing to try things. So then I just started recording it and it just kind of started growing. And it, I started wanting to interview people like you guys are. Mm -hmm. And then it just allowed me to network with people because I had something to um, relate to them about. Like I could ask other dermatologists, hey, do you want to be on my podcast to talk about this? this, you know, disease or this topic and selfishly, I got to keep learning. Yeah. I don't want to be stale and how I practice medicine either. Like I want to change what I'm doing. Yeah. That would be pretty boring to always do the same thing for 40 years. So, um, basically that's all. And it's just kind of organically happened from there. And I love that. And I, I couldn't agree more, like, as far as my experience of doing this, where, you know, I'm in my little pigeonhole of medicine and I have learned I mean, to be honest with you, I don't, this is interesting, actually, we we do kind of a mixture of clinical and non-clinical stuff, you know, and actually, for me, well, a lot of the non-clinical chat has been the more, just the most enlightening stuff as well, and I saw something that, I wanted to ask you about this, actually, I, I saw something you put on social media recently about some sort of feedback, let's call it feedback, that you'd got about the type of content that you put on the podcast, and actually, I really, again, this really kind of resonated with me as far as I think someone had said, I don't like one of the formats that you do, maybe the interview format. And you were like, okay, <laughs> I could tell you were taking it on board, but you were like, okay, <laughs> so <laughs> let me get some feedback. And everyone was like, no, we love, listen, we love it. Just do it. You know, do you, do you. Um, what? Tell me about that. Was that, was that a little bit of a hard pill to swallow? Were you, did that? Did that affect you a little bit, do you think? Yeah. Um, you know, I'm a person that always wants everyone to be happy, but the flip side of that, I think as you get older and you get more experienced and you start to realize you can't make everybody happy, um, you get, you don't, you might take it a little like, oh, I can't believe they say that, but you don't necessarily like lose sleep about it. Like the reality is if you're going to put yourself out there, it's the same with lecturing. Like, yes, I think I like how I lecture, but not everyone's going to resonate with me. You know, there's certain things that I might not really uh, like reach out to people the same way as say another person would. That's why I think it's amazing to have several types of people. Like if someone, if another dermatologist wanted to put out stuff on social media, I'd be the first one to say, go for it. I share content of other people who do something similar because to me, I, the most important thing is to help more people practice better dermatology. And if it's not my hot mess mom of a way resonating with them, then I wanted them to find someone who does resonate with them. But to answer your question about that, so it was, it was just a comment about they didn't like the interview styles because they thought um, it just wasn't natural, which was surprising to me because it's the most fun ones I do. Like I love community. I love talking. I love collaborating um, almost to a fault. Like <laughs> As I've had to learn that sometimes I have to say no to things just based on time constraints. Um, but I just honestly was curious, like the nice thing about having a community on Instagram is you can use it as a focus group. And if I had say put that poll up and 90% of people said they only wanted me to do the short solo episodes, I probably still wouldn't have exactly changed what I did because I can't keep doing it. if I don't love it. And I love doing the interviews. 
So, um, but maybe I would have thrown in, you know, maybe I wouldn't have made it such an uh, important thing to try to get X amount of interviews like per year or per month. Um, so I was more just curious. I'm fine with other people having their opinions. I'm glad they like the shorter episodes. Um, but I was just genuinely curious if that was a theme and, you know, there were still quite a few people who did vote for shorter episodes, but yeah, it was like 70, 66 or 70% said they preferred the interview. So it just made me know that I was on the right track. I kind of, again, it resonates because I think I have similar kind of, you know, thoughts and, 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 you know, considerations about all that kind of stuff. And I think I, I, I couldn't agree more that for me, you know, at the beginning, Karen and I did sort of segments where I would talk about diabetes for 50 minutes and actually, <laughs> as I was going to say, as enjoyable that, that I, I have much more enjoyed talking to other people. I think it was so funny, actually, Karen, when we first started, you know, it was, it was really just me and Karen and we were like, so what are we going to, you know, we're gonna, I'll talk now for 50 minutes. And actually when we started, people wanted, well, wanted to come on and, and we had different people. I think it, it, it became so much more enjoyable for me. And actually one of the things, and I suppose this is ultimately where our reason for speaking today has come from, has been to do with Instagram and to do with the fact that actually a large majority of our guests have come through connections we've made on Instagram um, vets and nurses. And that's been a joy and actually uh, honestly amazing that that's been a really unexpected joy for me to talk to people from now all over the world that are sort of connected through this kind of quite lovely platform actually where people are very kind and, 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 um, and it is a lovely environment. Would you not say? Yeah, I definitely agree. Like some people call it like the Vetstagram community. It it really is. Um, you know, a lot of us have the same goals in mind. It's just to educate. And I think you have to be willing to evolve. And the reality is social media and probably something else like in 10 years is where a lot of people are spending their time. So you have to be willing to change what you're doing. And, you know, like, again, I still love lecturing. I will hopefully when the world comes down, get to do it back to doing like in-person lecturing. So that's what I love to do, but I also love to connect with people. So being able to connect with people, you know, through something like social media, so that when I do go to conferences, like they're a ton of work. Like sometimes people don't realize until they get into it, you know, the hours you spend making PowerPoints and writing proceedings notes. Um, and then traveling away from your family and then lecturing, you know, sometimes four hours in a row, sometimes eight hours in a row, um, it's wearing. So if all of a sudden you're not having fun doing it, or when I go to these conferences, you know, I don't have people that, um, I connect with that are within that lecturing circuit that we can get, get excited to see each other and collaborate on cool lectures, like you will burn out. So being able to have connections and meet people, through my podcast, it, it fuels me to keep going. So that's where you have to make sure you take critique and you take, um, you know, criticism because none of us are perfect in what we do. And I always want to get better, but you also have to be able to know that you love doing it. So for me, I know that I love doing the interviews. I love being on podcasts to help other people who are doing veterinary podcast. Um, and so if I had to give all that up just to talk to myself, you know, for 15 to 20 minute episodes once a week, like I would not want to do it anymore. Good. Yeah. No, I think it's great. Have you ever, um, talking about kind of traveling and everything, have you been to the UK? More importantly, Scotland. Have you been to Scotland? Oh, no, do you want me to, do you want me to come? <laughs> I'll come. 
There's a direct flight from London, from Portland, I think. Well, there used to be. I don't know. I haven't no, been on a plane is. for over a year. There is. Uh, no, there is. Um, there so, still yeah. is? Yeah, there still is. Um, so you, yeah, so we, um, well, listen, it's definitely as much as obviously I'm sure everyone says that about the place that they live, but it's a very, very cool place and I'm sure you would absolutely love it here. So yeah, you must definitely uh, must come and visit. I'm watching the crown right now. I'm watching the crown. Oh, so. la- <laughs> I love it. I love it. It's just like that. So I'm in. <laughs> I don't want to I don't want to be I want to go to the places they go without actually being within the crown yeah (laughs) are you which which series of the crown are you on end of two we haven't changed the the queen's actress hasn't changed yet but we're about to end two okay okay so what I was going to say is there's what I love about the crown off topic is that because obviously the Queen has a, a residence in Scotland, Balmoral, which is featured a lot in the Crown. So when she goes off shooting and hunting stag and everything, that's where we live. <laughs> it's, it's really beautiful. So there you go. I'm there. <laughs> so that's our bit. Um, so yeah, there's a few questions that we ask everyone. Um, and I wanted to ask you if that was okay. So um, first of all, and again, I say this every time, it doesn't have to be, well, I say it doesn't, I always say it doesn't have to be veterinary, but usually it's kind of cool if it is. My first question is, who inspires you? Oh, that's such a <laughs> difficult question. I should have gotten these ahead of time or I'll be sitting here thinking. I think there's like a few different people that inspire me. If I So I'm going to I'm gonna bridge it, bridge it into like people I know personally, because, you know, I could like go off and like famous people, but people I know personally, I'm going to have a non-veterinarian and a veterinarian. Okay. So. Yeah, yeah, good. Yeah, I'm just not, I'm not willing to claim like one person. Um, So my, it's and there's, they're not going to be like super creative because my non-veterinarian would probably be my dad. So mm. he was an Air Force pilot. He, um, you know, always like he super like hard work ethic, love to, you know, provide for us. And then, you know, he's retired and now he's an airline pilot and he, my work ethic is a hundred percent from him. Like, absolutely. Like my, my family, my mom will say like, you are just like your dad. Like when, you know, I just want to do it all. And sometimes that's bad. So I have to learn to pull back, but I would say that is ingrained in me from him. Um, as far as like veterinarian, um, you know, definitely I've tons of wonderful mentors. Um, but my, one of my main mentors at, where I did my residency, Dr. Wayne Rosencrantz is always been like my derm dad. Like we just have a very special relationship. I was just on the phone with him yesterday. Like he's still in California where, you know, he's helped me with so many opportunities. He worked super hard and is super passionate and half the opportunities I've had is from him. Um, so that would definitely be probably my veterinarian one though. I could name probably like 15. No, they're, uh, they're great ones. I love that. My dad, that's a good answer. That's a good answer. Um, And then second, if you were to do this all again and have the choice, I suppose, to pursue veterinary medicine in the way that you've done or not, or do something else, um, would you choose to do what you've, what you've done? Yeah, I'm, as you said, I'm wildly passionate about what I do. I love being a dermatologist. Um, I love educating and lecturing and I love doing it in a way that it's more focused on general practitioners. Sometimes people have asked like, why I don't go into like say academia, but I really love clinical teaching. Like I love 
people who truly want to learn, who have been in the field that have cases that have questions. That is truly what I love. I think the only thing if, and I was just talking to my husband about this, if I could like do something additional and, you know, actually have the time for it, I think it would have actually been really interesting because I do a lot just with helping our um, clinic as far as like business. And I actually think it's really important and not taught enough in school. And I was on the national board of like the VBMA when I was in vet school. So the one thing I would change is I think it'd be super interesting to go back and like get my MBA. Oh, cool. Yeah. I think it's important to know business aspect. And I wish I knew more, like I kind of um, help consult just in some of the day-to-day activities of our company, but I wish I understood the business side more. Cause the truth is if you want to be successful and provide the best medicine, you have to be successful in the business aspect too. So that would be the one thing. If I could change anything, I would somehow find the two years in my life to get an MBA, but you can still do it. You can still do it. I've thought about it. It would have to be until my kids are older. Cause my husband's already dreading when this pandemic ends and I go back to traveling. <laughs> so I think I better wait a little bit. I, I I feel do we need to do we need to shout out your husband? Does he deserve like some sort of little medal for all yes. this? Do you think? Or? He hundred percent does. <laughs> he yes, I'm very fortunate to have someone who's supportive and um you know refocuses me. That's that's extremely important. He he absolutely deserves a ton of credit. I mean he we jokingly call him like the CFO of the Derm Vet. And I call myself like creative director because of all the organization and stuff we have to, you know, I mean, all this stuff is like, we have to submit taxes for and do all the other stuff that comes with it. And like, luckily I'm married to an engineer who loves numbers. So he definitely is a lot of behind the scenes. What does CF, what does CFO stand for? Like chief financial officer. I was like, I thought that was some like funny, like, I, sounded, I don't know what I thought that was. <laughs> okay, chief financial <laughs> officer. It sounded like UFO. I was like, what is she talking about? Um, oh, no. Okay, fine. Yes, chief financial officer. Sorry, you're obviously clearly got so much more of a business acumen than I do, clearly. Um, <laughs> so, yeah. So, anyway, shout out to your husband. Um, and then the last question, the last, well, the last question is, if you were to give, and again, I got a, I'm such a broken record, Karen, every time, one piece of advice, but it doesn't have to be one. If you feel like there's more, it's okay. Um, but one piece of advice that you would give to younger vets or veterinary professionals listening, that kind of nugget of wisdom that you can give them, what would that be? Okay, I'm going to do two because obviously I can never make up my mind. Um, my first one's just going to be about the veterinary field in general. Um, you can always find something within our field. You can always find something, whether that's, you need to change clinics, whether that's needs to be, you change your path. There are so many things you can do with a veterinary degree. You can go into industry, you can go into government, you can go into, you know, food. Like there's so many things you can do. Um, so don't take it for granted and just realize that you can always change. You can always change. And once you find where you're meant to be in our field, you will absolutely fall in love with it, which is why I think I am so passionate about it. Um, along those lines, I would say I heard a quote, um, and it was from the rock. I love this. I love this already. I also admire. (laughs) And, but I think it's a wonderful quote and (laughs) he's just striking as a super good guy. 
Yeah, yeah, really cool. Yeah, and he had a quote the other day, and I and I think it's great, and it's probably one of my my favorite quotes now. And it is, it is nice to be important, but it's more important to be nice. Um, love. Yeah, in our veterinary field, if I can say anything, is extremely relationship based. So you want to be kind to your staff. You want to be kind to other doctors. Like that doesn't mean you'll always work the best with other doctors, but you absolutely never know. Networking is everything in our field. Um, and it is very important. I think to just be a kind person, that doesn't mean you can't stand up for yourself. It doesn't mean you can't have priorities, but you just need to be kind. Wow. And you, I, I mean, yeah, I mean, I, I can't I, <laughs> from the rock. <laughs> I, well, this is the, I can't, I, I cannot agree more in so many levels. I love mic drop that that's from the rock. Like, I love that, <laughs> but I love, I, I, but I absolutely cannot, I cannot tell you how much I, 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 we've, and we've talked about this Karen over the episode, you know, just so much, but it just is the, 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 the message that comes through from so many people that we speak to. And I think that's so, so true. And there really is no place for for it not to be true even in our kind of busiest moments in clinic regardless of how important you think you are um and that emphasis on think you know because it really is none of us are any more important than anyone else so important oh yeah i love that thank you for sharing that i love that um well listen i i i you know i i i know you only through social media and so it's always difficult. You you reach out to people and you never know how conversations are going to go. But I honestly can't tell you how much I've enjoyed chatting to you today. Like, I just think it has been a, what a joy and what a, some amazing kind of insights and stories that you've kind of shared. And, and so I, I just want to say a massive, massive thank you um, for you chatting to us in that way. Honestly, what a joy. Thank you so much. Thank oh, you. that means so much. I've had a really great time too. I think like just having these conversations is super important in our field and, you know, yeah, I really appreciate you asking me to be on. We're moving into our clinical segment now and we are so grateful for IMV Imaging for their support. We're talking to the amazing Kat Evans and we're talking all things radiography. Now Karen, one of the things we touch on is the difference between CR and DR. Where are you up to with that? I mean, I have no idea. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, there are different letters in that. Are they different? Right. Well, listen, you (laughs) need to let... You need to be listening this week because you're going to learn all about it. Okay. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks so much, Kat, for joining us uh, this week. I want to highlight, actually, excitingly, that you are the first guest that we've had that is not a vet or vet nurse. And I think that is actually only a positive thing. So um, we are um, speaking, obviously, as part of our... Uh, imaging kind of takeover month and I think it's just really exciting that we have your kind of expertise to call upon so I think just to start it would be interesting for you to um, introduce yourself to the the listeners and just a little bit about your background. So I'm Kat Evans and I originally trained a very long time ago back in the 90s as a human radiographer Um, but Mm -hmm. whilst I've loved being a radiographer from day one I was always very much much interested in the veterinary side, grew up on a small holding, sort of animals have been have always been interested in. 
And actually, the first job I applied mm -hmm. for was at one of the universities who were looking for a radiographer. But they pointed out that they didn't really want somebody straight out of uni and to sort of go and learn my trade a little bit. So mm -hmm. started off working in the NHS, which was really interesting, but it is very hard work, as I think people are more aware now. And while I was doing that, I developed quite an interesting cross-sectional imaging. So CT, MRI, looking at sort of the higher end things of life. And that's not always been the easiest to get into. Um, mm -hmm. So I was officially offered a job for a mobile company. So what it was was traveling around on a truck, parking up in a car park of a hospital, mm -hmm. spending the day doing MRI or CT, and then packing mm -hmm. up at the end of the day, truck goes off one way, you go the other and repeat. Mm -hmm. And they actually had the first veterinary MRI service in a truck. And mm -hmm. I was like, oh, combining the two things I loved, MRI and veterinary. And I started mm -hmm. doing that. And so it was in the very early days. So early 2000s and they were going to the Royal Vet College, Glasgow Uni, um, mm -hmm. various private practices and some of the referral practices and loved doing that and actually became the lead radiographer for that area and was mm -hmm. really enjoying it. Um, as often happens though, the company changed hands and the new owners felt there wasn't a future in veterinary imaging, which I thought was <laughs> odd. I do <laughs> I think we're, we're lacking a bit of vision there actually that seems quite misguided <laughs> so... yeah it was very misguided and it did result yeah. in some of the radiographers going off and actually getting the funding and that's where Burgess were formed from so oh, they went right. off in one direction um I at the time was doing going up to Fitzpatrick referrals every other week and cool. Noel decided he was going to be putting MR into his new practice so he said to me you know I know you I know you your work do you want to come mm -hmm. work for me so I started working for him and basically helped him set up the MR and CT service at his referral practice which I absolutely loved um, mm -hmm. but the only downside was I'm a West Country girl I've loved living down in <laughs> Devon and Surrey is not Devon no it's so not. <laughs> you've got to go where your heart is at that point oh, yeah. and at the time chaps at BCF Technology were wanting to go into cross-sectional imaging and their mm -hmm. thought was if they employed a radiographer with veterinary understanding this would be a good stepping stone into that mm -hmm. so 11 years ago I still work, started working at BCF who are now IMV um, mm -hmm. which is where I currently work and began doing x-ray a bit of ultrasound initially and then about five years ago they took on cross-sectional imaging as well so the role that I've been doing has been training people in CT, a little bit of MRI training, and also a lot of troubleshooting and going into practices if they're not getting on well with their digital radiography to help them get the best from the equipment. And that's, and that's really interesting, I think. And one of the things that I think is really interesting about your kind of experience is that you actually will have seen over the years, the changes, particularly in the veterinary sector, we're always a wee bit behind what the, the human people are doing. I'm sure you're aware of that. But actually, that's one of the things I was interested in asking you about. So can you can you kind of talk us through, particularly with our focus on radiography today, 
And I remember, you know, as a vet student being in a dark cupboard processing, you know, dip whatever you did. I mean, my goodness me. And then them being hung up on pegs and things. I mean, I, that that's not that long ago. Do you know what I mean? So can you talk us a, a, through a little bit just about the evolution of literally bits of film which I, there was something quite cool about hanging up a film actually let's not let's not underestimate that but can you talk us through a little bit the evolution from film to what we've kind of got today that obviously is much more well I'm sure better in lots of ways so when I actually qualified film was the thing um, and mm. there was still work in developing better film processes and when I then started sort of coming more into the veterinary that was when CR and then direct digital DR had really mm-hmm. come to light and when I was training can you just can you just say what what just just remind us what exactly CR and DR stand for just so we're totally clear so CR is computed radiography and that's the mm-hmm. systems which were almost designed to be the next step from film in that you still have a cassette and inside the cassette rather than a sheet of film you've got a phosphorus screen. And what that screen does is when radiation hits it, rather than emitting light like the old intensifying screens did, it actually stores that data. And then when you put it into a processor, the processor blasts it with a laser, and at which point the phosphorus screen goes, oh, and releases the radiation information back out as light, which the reader will read. So you've got your radiation being converted into a stored piece of data and then being released as light and then red, and then you get a digital image. So it has a very similar workflow to film. And I think for old school radiographers, it was much more understandable because you still had a cassette, you still put it in a processor, Mm -hmm. but Mm -hmm. the picture just appeared somewhere different. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Whereas direct digital, um, so DR, and very often I like to call it direct digital radiography because that's the Mm -hmm. more correct name, but very often it is Mm -hmm. known to everybody as just digital radiography. Mm -hmm, is mm -hmm. using a very different technology and it's almost related to the detectors that you have in a digital camera so what you have inside of the plate inside of the which is often a little bit bigger than a normal x-ray plate but inside the plate is there'll be little tiny detectors linked together that either react directly to radiation and create a digital signal or there'll be a sheet of glass which has been painted with a substance that, again, reacts to radiation and emits light. So, again, it virtually is just like a camera that it sees the light and converts that to a digital signal. And these are, well, historically been very hard to make, which is why direct digital in the early days was very expensive. And the, sort of the first systems that went in, people in the UK were paying around £100,000 for a direct digital system, which is a lot of money, but you get a CT scanner for that. (laughs) (laughs) Pretty much. But it's like everything. The first digital cameras were a fortune. Yeah. The first direct digital was a fortune. Um, But as the technology for making them's improved, that's helped the prices come down. Um, Mm -hmm. So in the time that I've been involved, I've seen the prices come down by about a third which is a big drop in price. And it's predominantly come down to the capabilities of producing the DR detector. Now, the one downside to DR is they're not as robust if you're a bit rough with them. So Mm -hmm. for the equine guys, this can obviously be quite an issue 
because horses like to kick <laughs> things and the early systems were all cabled and there seems to be mm -hmm. a magnetic attraction between a horse's hoof and a cable. So a lot of yeah. work was done as well to develop wireless systems. And these have been a real changer for everybody, especially within mm -hmm. human medicine, because if you've got a totally mm -hmm. wireless system, you can put it in a plastic bag, which especially in modern times with infection control being a big issue, it's sealed in a bag so that you can go between patients without having to do as much cleaning of the equipment, um, mm -hmm. which has been a big changer, um, but also improves yeah. the workflow within a veterinary practice. Yeah, and I think and that's actually speed is the yeah, big the, benefit. One hundred percent. One and and I think that's a really interesting thing. So I think that focus on workflow management is really really interesting. And and I I certainly from my own experience of the direct now that I know what to call it properly, the direct digital uh, system that we use, um, you know, one of the big benefits is that it is so efficient, it's so quick. And, and I suppose from my clinical perspective, there's definitely an efficiency for the patient as far as time spent on a table, under sedation, under anesthesia, whatever else. There's no doubt that that is a time-saving efficiency that is going to benefit the, the patient as well. Can you just kind of, can you highlight then what the, apart from the obvious, and we've kind of stated some of them, but but what are the kind of key benefits then of this direct digital system that we're, a lot of us are moving to? I think for me, it, the main thing with a direct digital compared to a computed radiography is you still have moving parts of computed radiography. So you still put the cassette under the patient, take the radiograph, lift the patient up again, put the cassette through the machine. And realistically, the processing time tends to be around a minute, give or take, but the actual moving of the patient, et cetera, can be two or three minutes. Whereas with your direct digital, your plate is normally just under the patient. So you're reducing lifting of patients, which is better from a manual handling point of view. Um, and it's just that faster workflow, less touching mm -hmm. of stuff. And as soon as you have something with moving parts, there's a risk of things jamming. And with a computed <laughs> radiography yeah. system, if you're very good and you stand directly in front of it and you push the cassette in nice and straight, mm -hmm. they'll very rarely jam. If you're in a mm -hmm. rush and you're off to one side and you kind of throw it vaguely into the machine and it goes in a bit wonky, mm -hmm. Like everything in life, there's a much more chance of it jamming. And cassette jams are one of the biggest issues. And if you make a good job of jamming the cassette, your system might be out until the engineer can get to you, which is catastrophic. Mm -hmm. I can kind of see people becoming frustrated and literally, you know, I've seen that happen where you're just like, oh, come on. You know, I just want this thing to work and do it quickly. And the quicker you do it, the more you jam it. And then it all is just going absolutely, yeah, it's all going mad. I think one of the things that I think, and, and this is something that, that is, we've kind of highlighted um, over the course of this month, I think regardless of the technology you're using, I think it's really important to remember that the basics of, of taking good images are still always the same. So, you know, and, and we get sent a lot of, of x-rays to to look at maybe for a second opinion and different things. And 90% of the time, the problem with the images is to do with positioning um actually and the way you know the, the the so if we take time over good position and good collimation the right exposure and all that kind of stuff that you know far more about than I do but I think just creating an image of good quality um is always got to be of fundamental importance and I think that um 
no uh, fancy technology in the world is ever going to probably substitute for the fact that we need to always get those basic things right as well. Would you Would you agree with that? Oh, yes. It's one of my big passions. Um, <laughs> and one of the things whilst I've been working at IMV we've done is run day courses on reminding people of the basic physics, going through positioning refresher, going through about KB and MAS and ensuring that if you do the basics and you get those things right, you'll get amazing pictures. Um, it's often been a company joke that my out of office actually says increase the MAS because the majority of the... Yeah. <laughs> It's literally on my com- on my out of office is try increasing the MAS. Um, and it was quite interesting. I was oh, chatting I to <laughs> a radiologist who I know, and he actually feels that mm-hmm. since more practices have gone digital, the image quality that they were seeing coming into them at a university was worse than when practices were on film. And he said the biggest problems were mm-hmm. poor positioning because, oh, that will do. Um and then also mm-hmm. poor exposure. And the one which just drives me up the wall, I love the word quantum model, but that is what you see on so many pictures. And it's fundamentally <laughs> a lack of MAS. What is that? <laughs> so if you think... Sorry, just can you, just tell us the word again. What's the word? Quantum model. Quantum. Right, so I'll like quantum science and different things. And what yeah. it is, we're mm-hmm. all used to using our camera phones Um to take photos and Mm -hmm. if you take a photograph indoors and you don't turn the flash on you get that noisy grainy picture and you Mm -hmm. can play with it with various apps to try and make it better and put filters on Mm -hmm. but if it's a noisy grainy photo Mm -hmm. nothing you do makes it better and that wasn't enough light hitting Mm -hmm. that detector and what you see is quantum Mm -hmm. modeling Um, or if you try and zoom a picture up from a long distance again you see that mm-hmm. same speckly appearance and this is what you see on so mm-hmm. many radiographs so you look at it and as soon as you go to zoom it up all the definition goes and what it will be mm-hmm. is people are very good at increasing their kv but everybody's scared of mas mm-hmm. because they think that if you increase the mas you'll get more movement but you need radiation to make a picture so i sort of tend mm-hmm. to on the courses that i've done sit there going increase the MAS, increase the MAS, use more MAS. Because mm-hmm. in all reality, mm-hmm. to get a good x-ray, you need radiation. And whilst we're always trying mm-hmm. to keep our dose mm-hmm. to our staff and patients down, if you don't use enough radiation to form a picture, no matter how good your mm-hmm. system is, you get a noisy picture. Mm-hmm. So it has been mm-hmm. quite a joke and people always sort of go on about me muttering again and again about MAS, but you need it. And it's important to do the basics. Do you think? Do you think? Do you think your message has got through? I think. Or are you still bang your head against a brick wall? I think it's <laughs> gradually getting there. Um, and okay. I know our, the engineers um, up at the office now, if they're assessing image quality complaints, nearly always. I've told the customer to increase the MAS. This does seem to have helped. So I think the message is gradually getting there. But I think. Yeah. One of the things we didn't realise when we used film is everybody thinks of film x-rays of being quite flat and wishy-washy. And that's how they thought those x-rays were meant to look. And actually that was bad exposure. And it partly comes down to the tendency for people to buy the cheapest x-ray generator they can. 
And so mm-hmm. long as it sort of does the numbers that they think it needs, that's what we go for. Um, and very often, a lot of the smaller generators that could almost be handheld if, when that was allowed haven't got the power to actually do what you need. So mm-hmm. there's an old trick you can do in X-ray that if you increase your KV by 10, you can halve mm-hmm. the MAS that you use and you get what's classed as the same effective exposure. And then if you do that again, you think, oh, great, you know, it, it works, this will be fine. But what's happening is as you increase the penetration and drop the amount of radiation, you actually end up with quite a, a flat image. And if you don't have enough mm-hmm. radiation, it doesn't matter how much KV you throw it at, it doesn't do the same. Mm-hmm. Um, and I often sort of say to people is to think of something like propofol, that when you inject propofol, if you've only got five mils of propofol and a 50 kilo dog, it's not going to do the job, no matter how fast you inject it. Mm-hmm. And as soon as you say to mm-hmm. people in a sort of a drugs term or a term that relates more to what mm-hmm. their expertise mm-hmm. is, mm-hmm. you think, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, no matter how much I inject an inadequate amount, it's never going to be enough. And, you know, mm-hmm. I've always had a frustration that there's not more radiographers in veterinary imaging. Because the reality is mm-hmm. my training was three years of how to get, take good pictures. And the mm-hmm. only way you mm-hmm. can really be an expert at taking good pictures is if that's what you do. And everybody yeah, in the veterinary profession, vets and nurses have so many other things you have to concentrate on that very often mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. taking x-rays is the tiny part of the job. And if it's not going mm-hmm. so well or your machine's not good, people don't want to do it. So it becomes the, oh, God, mm-hmm. we've got x-rays to do. And nobody wants to do it. Mm-hmm. Whereas if you have somebody who basically spent three years of their life learning to take good pictures and has a passion for that, who either is at the practice part-time or full-time, that is their mm-hmm. sort of desire. And I'm increasingly now seeing you know, all the universities have radiographers, an increasing number of uh, referral practices do. Mm-hmm. Because they've realized that you get so much more from the equipment, you get better diagnostic yield, you reduce stress. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, you know, if mm-hmm. an owner's paying for a radiograph, that should be a diagnostic radiograph. Because if, mm-hmm. you know, when I was working with Noel at Fitzpatrick's, we were repeating nearly every x ray that came to the practice. So the owners mm-hmm. paid twice. And that's, mm-hmm. yeah, that's not fair to them, really, is it? And definitely the insurance companies don't no. like that, do they? The, the, you're absolutely right. I think it's, it's we get criticised a lot in referral practice for the, the repeating certain tests. And, um, and I think that, um, that we should be accountable for that sort of thing. But again, if we, if, 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 if the radiographs are not of diagnostic quality, then I think we, we do sometimes have to repeat them, but it does come back to these things. It probably is definitely more about just the basics of positioning and, and these things rather than someone not having the fancy, you know, fancy, enough kit or whatever I do think that I mean I work with uh, radiographers and I couldn't agree more that 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 is been massively beneficial to to us here in the practice so no I I would absolutely um support and and um uh, vouch for that that it is massively beneficial to have someone with that skill set I wanted to so there was a couple of things that you touched on um there actually that I wanted to to ask about. Um so I think just to summarize 
basically we're saying, you know, um, direct um, digital um, uh, systems are definitely brilliant, but they are not brilliant enough to take away every single grainy bit of the rubbish image or whatever. So I think we have to just be always going back to basics, which I think is, you know, getting the basic stuff right is so important in so many aspects of veterinary uh, practice. I think a lot of people, you know, it's easy for me to sort of sit here in referral practice and say blah, 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 because we've got all the fancy bits of whatever. I think people listening might be like, well, you know, this all sounds great, but I bet there's a significant cost differential with these kind of fancier, in inverted commas, uh, digital systems versus maybe some of the older systems. I mean, is is that something that puts people off? Are they right to be, you know, kind of anxious about the the cost differential? Um, do you think is that is that a thing? The cost differential has definitely decreased. Um, and mm-hmm. historically, when I was talking to people, I would say to them, if you're doing more than or less than one or two patients a day, then CR really is the route to go from a financial point of view, mm-hmm. because the Bit, the little bit longer time it takes to do stuff is fine because you're not as pushed for time. Whereas if you're x-raying more than three or four patients a day, then the time saving of DR becomes real in a daily thought. But also we forget about other bits of time in that if you mm-hmm. aren't having to do any maintenance on the equipment, because for a direct digital system, your maintenance is to give it a wipe off, and reboot the computer once a week if you're in a small animal practice. So minimal maintenance compared to with CR computer radiography where you might be having to clean the cassettes and do a little bit more. That's another time saving. But also with various tax breaks that come along for helping you with purchasing, quite often it can be more efficient to spend a little bit more on the equipment. Um, Mm -hmm. There's a practice near me down in Devon who's a one and a half vet practice and about I think it was five or six years ago they approached us saying yeah we're looking at going digital what do you suggest and I had a chat and it's like well you're Mm -hmm. not doing that much so really going to CR from film sounds like a great plan and then they came back to us as well actually we've spoken to the accountant and he said we can actually save more money if we spend a bit more money so I was like, okay, fine. Mm-hmm. Yeah, if you're happy with your figures. And they went ahead, they went on to a direct digital system. So they were quite an early adopter for the area. And I was chatting to them more recently. And they said, well, actually, we take twice as many radiographs now as we ever used to. Because patients will come mm-hmm. in. And when it was filmed, you'd be, oh, I'm going to turn it on. I've got to warm the chemicals up. You know, oh, do I have mm-hmm. to do this? Is there film in the cassette? So you were like, oh, I won't work. Oh, yeah, I'll manage without an x-ray. Whereas now you think, okay, it's two minutes to boot the computer, let's go. And patients where they weren't sure if they were going to stay still for an x-ray, so they didn't want to go through everything and not get a picture, they're x-raying. And Mm -hmm. it paid itself off in a couple of years. Mm -hmm. And you think, actually, Mm -hmm. that's Mm -hmm. a real, yeah, really brought home to me that just how much work you're doing doesn't necessarily balance back. And I think if something's Mm -hmm. easy to use, you use it. Mm-hmm. Um, I've saw that, mm-hmm. seen that at practices that I've visited where if the blood machine is one that's a nightmare to use, nobody wants to take a blood test because they're dreading mm-hmm. arguing with the machine. Mm-hmm. Whereas if something's easy to use and it's drop a few bits of dro- blood into a cartridge, even me as a radiographer managed to do mm-hmm. that sometimes and you feed it in the machine, you get a result. Mm-hmm. 
to like it's easy let's do it and so I think that really helps also some of the direct digital and CR systems have positioning guides built in so if you are having a moment where you can't quite remember how to do something they'll actually have an example photograph and radiograph of what you should be achieving so that can be helpful for students but also if you're someone who doesn't take many radiographs having an easy to refer to this is what I need to do guide um, with hints and tips or one of the things IMV did was come up with positioning guides that and posters so yeah. literally you can have an a3 poster on the wall of how to do your hip and elbow score with photographs mm-hmm. with the key points about how to position the patient with hints and tips and what to look for and to me anything like that that is on the wall you don't have to go looking it helps mm-hmm. doesn't it and you know nothing beats yeah, well, remembering yeah, your training but anything that helps you do better again i think really can be helpful there's too much to remember. I think, you know, this is the thing like, you know, I think we, you know, so we all these guides uh, and like you say, the, the, these laminated things you can stick in the wall. I mean, it's just amazingly helpful because actually, uh, yeah, who can remember it all? We can't, we just physically can't. So I suppose, um, you know, as, as more and more, um, practices sort of adopt these systems, clearly, clearly there is massive benefits to that for the, vets and nurses or the, the staff working with the machines but also obviously and, and it comes down to the fundamental for the patients as far as um as far as your from your sort of wealth of experience what would you say overall your kind of top tips are for people navigating potentially hopefully getting these newer systems but but your your overall your top tips for for getting the best uh, quality uh, images that you can? I think, as we've touched on, remember the basics. So ensure your patient is in a position that they're not going to move because motion artifacts, no matter how good your system is, systems can't compensate for that. So if your patient's correctly positioned and immobilised, that's always going to be a good starting point. When you're looking at exposure settings, never go off of patient weight. You always want to go off the thickness of the part of the patient and consider their body condition score as well. And this was brought home to me. I used to have a staffy cross and a lurcher, very different shaped dogs, and they weighed within half a kilo of each other. <laughs> and if I'd used the same exposure yeah. for the staffy's head as I did for mm-hmm. the lurcher's head, <laughs> it wasn't going to work. <laughs> Plus, one of the heads was quite yeah, empty. That's amazing, yeah. Um, so, you know, the yeah. his head was twice <laughs> <Which> the size. <laughs> <laughs> he he was the brains of the operation. The lurcher, bless him, got his right. brains from his greyhound mum. Mm-hmm. Um, so he was a lovely dog, right? And he was very good at being ultrasounded because that involved it lying still and not moving. But anything more than that, mm. that was pushing his skill set. He remembered to breathe, which was Fair always enough, good. Yeah. So remembering that. <laughs> Weight is not good for exposures. So always measure. Mm -hmm. And I know the RCVS guidelines say you need to have a device so that you can measure patient depth. Plastic ruler works Mm -hmm. really well. You know, a couple of quid from Mm -hmm. supermarket. And then if you go off of depth Mm -hmm. of the patient, your exposure is going to be more accurate. Um, The old excuse Mm -hmm. that I've always used is muscle is denser than fat. Um, So always remember if your patient's a very muscular patient, you're going to need to increase the exposure. And 
mm -hmm. never be afraid to increase your exposure. You're better off taking one X-ray mm -hmm. with the right exposure than two or three with the wrong exposure. Mm -hmm. And if you've taken two or three X-rays, your stress level is going to go up. Your patient's going to be sedated or anesthetized for longer. They're mm -hmm. going to get cold. So, you know, it's a, you add up and then you get frustrated and then you make more mistakes and you get this nasty spiral happen. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, just mm -hmm. get your exposures right. Measure your patient. Don't be afraid to put a blanket over a patient when they're being x-rayed. Um, I quite often go into practices and there's just a dog on a naked table. And I point out that when mm -hmm. we have radiographs, we lie on a bed. There's a little thin mattress. So mm -hmm. you can have blankets mm -hmm. over the patient. And obviously, if it's a very small part of the patient, like a chihuahua's leg, you keep the rest of the dog wrapped and just unwrap the bit you're doing at the time, mm -hmm. which helps them stay warm. Mm -hmm. Because seeing patients mm -hmm. post-X-ray hypothermic because of how long it's taken, that's totally preventable in my sort of mm -hmm. from my experience. Mm -hmm. And then if you're struggling, mm -hmm. don't be afraid to ask for help. Be that somebody within the yeah. practice um, or asking out to a company, you know, it is possible to rate, to find radiography CPD. Um, mm -hmm. But also if there's someone in the practice that likes taking x-rays, make them into the, your x-ray champion. I know that some practices mm -hmm. will have a champion for looking after the endoscopy equipment or for looking after specific mm -hmm. things within the practice. Mm -hmm. So if you've got somebody who likes imaging, make them your imaging champion and make them a, encourage them further to become a resource that everybody can refer to if they need help and that also means if you've mm -hmm. got digital of either this computed or direct digital if mm -hmm. they're the real expert on the software they can be the person who looks after new staff because we all know with computers if you don't know what how to run the software life gets very hard um, new practice management systems mm -hmm. i know cause a lot of stress so getting good training on your digital systems really important and feel confident with the equipment because sometimes just choosing mm -hmm. the wrong body part can have a big impact on image quality and it's just if you feel confident mm -hmm. using something you want to use it and mm -hmm. all of these things mm -hmm. can actually be classed as cpd so if you had yeah. somebody visit the practice when that was possible or doing online cpd now you know training on equipment is professional development so if you're struggling to get mm -hmm. your hours in having an hour session or watching some webinars, you know, there's quite a lot of free webinars up there. There's ones upon via IMV that can really give mm -hmm. you a good resource to build your confidence up. Yeah. I think I love that idea, you know, about making someone a champion. I think that's so empowering, but also great for someone's own sort of development. And, and I just think that's a lovely way of kind of actually pushing it. So really, really, I think that's a great piece of advice. So, well, listen, we thank you so much for all of that. It's been, um, I've learned a lot today, um, but really, really um, amazing to, you know, to draw on your experience as well. So massive thank you to, for chatting um, uh, with us today. So another massive thank you to the amazing Ashley and uh, the lovely Kat for their conversation and uh, the learning we've had today. Uh, huge thank you to IMV Imaging for their support of this podcast today. We really, truly appreciate that. For more information about Ashley and what she does, as well as IMV Imaging and what they do, please do check out the show notes of the podcast. And 
I finish always by saying a massive thank you to you for listening and supporting everything we do. We really are so appreciative of that. Um, if you want to know a bit, a, a bit more about VTX, then do head over to our website, which is www.vtx-cpd.com and do give us a little like, follow and share on our social media platforms. Massive thank you again and we'll see you next week. Thank you.